This is a Rocket Audio production. Thanks for finding us. This is Rocket Fuel. We are the podcast that's a series of one-to-one interviews where we look to find people that have shaped, created, morphed, understood youth culture and youth marketing. I'm James Erskine, and this week's guest is a guy called Chris Hurst. He's a bit like a superhero, like so many of our guests are, in that he has a day job. He's the global CEO of huge advertising group Havas Creative. And we speak to him a bit about agency world, how brands understand this target audience. But actually, what we look at more is his recent book. It's called No BS Leadership. You see, we've taken and looked at youth audiences as they relate to their media choices, as they relate to their hobbies, but we've not yet really addressed how they'll perform in the workplace. And we talk about issues such as upward management. We talk about what makes a good leader and a good business leader and a good boss. And then we ask Chris Hurst, global CEO of Havas Creative and recent author of No Bullshit Leadership. We ask him for his rocket fuel. Chris, first of all, thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. So the first section that we uh, look at on Rocket Fuel is about getting to understand you, the person, and you, the professional person. Mm -hmm. Why don't you bring to life your journey? Um, Sounds a very impressive job title. How on earth did you get there? So I'll try and keep it short. I did a degree in engineering. Um, uh, That was mostly because I was quite good at maths. And if you do maths at A-level... You, you end up doing something like engineering. So I did a degree in engineering. My first job was in the factory, in a glass factory in St. Helens, um, where I worked as an apprentice, effectively. Um, so uh, so I did a year in a factory. I did a four-year engineering, engineering degree. And at the end of that, actually, I did, I did enjoy my time in St. Helens. I didn't enjoy my degree. Um, at the end of that, I decided, you know what? I don't know what I do want to do, but I definitely don't want to be an engineer. And I definitely don't want to work in a factory. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so I suppose it's a useful learning uh, in that sense. Um, so I, I I ended up doing advertising, and I, I think in the looked at from this distance, I think probably because advertising was as far away as I could imagine and find from engineering. Um, to be honest, no more science to it than that. I then um, worked through worked at a series of uh, UK-based, London-based creative agencies. That's really my professional, if you can call a creative agency professional. That's really my professional background. Um, And I suppose I worked my way up the slippery pole, uh, I guess. Um, And so my job now is, yeah, my job now is I'm the global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Um, so we are a, 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 an international, um, French-owned international marketing services business. I can't imagine our listeners, kind of people from the world's marketing tech, places like that, won't have heard of Havas, but they're one of the biggest players in this market, aren't they? Um, Chris, oh, go on. How, how does, yeah, talk to us briefly on Havas and, and the journey within that, go on. Uh, so I joined. I joined Havas five years ago. Um, I I joined in a UK and Europe role, uh, and two years ago I took a, a global role. I think what's interesting about Havas is we are owned by uh, a group called Vivendi, mm. which, which people in the UK tend not to be that familiar with, if I'm honest. But people are familiar with the businesses that Vivendi own. So. Sure. So that's Studio Canal. Well, they own many, but the ones people will have heard of, Studio Canal, uh, Canal Plus, 
um, Havas, and most famously Universal Music, um, who are a huge uh, international business, one of the big three record labels, um, as well as having live and theatre and gaming and a whole uh, array of entertainment businesses. And I think it actually makes us, well, it certainly makes us unique um, in the yeah. multi space. Um, and it uh, and it makes my job really interesting, to be honest with you. It gives me access to a whole uh, new parts of whole new worlds. And what's not to like about that? Is there a particular type of agency person? And are you one of those agency people? Um, well, I don't know whether I so I think just about everybody that works in agencies will probably say, yes, there is an agency person. Uh, and I suspect, however, that nobody will admit to being that. Uh, that would be my <laughs> suspicion. <laughs> and I, I certainly have never seen myself as an agency person, really, at all. In fact, um, I don't know why. I don't. I don't know why that is. I mean, maybe that's me um, uh, being a bit in denial. But I don't particularly see myself as an agency person. No. Um, um, and I've never really felt. Uh, I. I yeah, that's the best answer. No, I no, I don't. Maybe that is partly my background. You know, it's, yeah. it's unusual having come into advertising from engineering. I, think. I can say this because broadly I work in the same space, but you, you've had a proper job before, whereas yeah, I never have. So. Not for very long. I know <laughs> I've been a proper job long enough to know what a proper job looks like. Let's put yeah. it out. <laughs> nice. And in terms of your role, Chris, are you good at switching off? Is it easy to switch off or, or not? I think... I think I'm a lot better than I was. I think I think um, that's certainly something that I've learned as I've gone through my career. And I think that I really wasn't for long periods of time. And, and you know, and if I if I was you know, um, to give a, a younger version of myself some advice, I think it would be that because in actual fact, I don't think I gained anything in a career sense or any other sense by not switching off. You know, I don't think I solved any problems or promoted more quickly. Um, averted crises by, you know, working 14 hours a day and waking up at 3 a.m. worrying about it. And in fact, I, it's fairly obvious to say, but in actual fact, I think I ended up not doing a whole load of other things that I probably would have enjoyed and would have probably made me better at my job if I'd done them. Um, in terms of that kind of teamwork mentality and, and things like that, have you, do you look for specific qualities in colleagues or in people you want to work with? Or is everybody very different? I think everybody is very different. Um, and I think that's one of the joys of um, of work. And I think there are lots of joys to be to be had from work. Um, it's one of the great, you know, uh, joys of life, doing, doing a job that you find fulfilling and rewarding and that you enjoy and that you learn from and you meet a variety of interesting people. So yes, I think that I think that one of the joys of the world of work is meeting lots of interesting people. That said, um, in the first part of your question is, is there a certain type of person I love mm. working with? No surprise to to any of listeners is I don't like working with people who are uh, and I don't think anybody does. I think I like people who are authentic. Um, I like people who are, um, who, who, who are smart. I mean, who doesn't? Um, people who are smart, people who have got, people who are, I think, able to find a, that, that really important balance between being individual, strong-willed, strong-minded, smart, and also able to function within a team. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting dynamic because I think one of the things with teams is you can't always be right. You can't always do it your way. You can't always um, have all the answers. You can't always be in charge. And I think there's that interesting tension, which is 
one of the challenges that leaders have in order to, to mm. manage that balance, I think. I mean, yes, in terms of speaking directly, I am aware that your book is called No Bullshit Leadership. So it's fascinating that you bring that into leadership. I just love a, a bit around advice or professional mentoring or just is there a piece of advice you've been given that you've ignored and it's gone fabulously well is there a nugget of advice that you take with you into every business capacity is there one thing that you'd you'd ask your teams to think on uh well probably unhelpfully i, I do get asked that question quite a lot and i can't think of any i despite despite repeatedly being asked it i, I don't have a good answer to it i don't have hmm. a big advice that i feel like well, I mean, I, by the way, I must have been given lots of advice. Yeah. <laughs> some blunt and some not, I must have been. Um, but I, there's nothing that I can think of that I think, wow, that was such an absolutely searing insight. Uh, you know, it stays with me forevermore. Um, I, I, I suppose I do remember I worked with a very, I worked, I worked with, I worked for mm. a, a very formidable uh, and impressive uh a woman in my very first job and she was very senior and very successful and I was very very junior and I do remember her saying to me I think probably quite bluntly um uh, you know never sit in a meeting and do nothing um mm. you know so even if you're the most junior person in the meeting make sure that you have some function in that meeting even if you're taking the notes I think that I think mm. she was telling me off for not taking notes I suspect but but I, I do think that that's you know it's, I do actually, I still think that today. I still find myself in meetings sometimes and thinking, what, what, why am I in this meeting? And am, am I adding value in this meeting? And given, I mean, it seems a bit, a bit of a flippant uh, piece of advice, but given how, how much of our time we all spend in meetings, um, um, you know, are we always, do we always have a role? And if not, why are we there? I'd love to stay on this. I was going to ask this in the next section, actually, about your work, but just providing value, which is essentially what you said in terms of a meeting and always be the person to say something. Can we just tackle the agency model for a second? I know it's a big question, but yeah. it's another link in the chain. And as advertisers are getting, I speak as a person that you know runs a, a marketing and a content business. So I'm right there with you, brother. But <laughs> in yeah, terms yeah. of that, adding a link in the chain, as advertisers, as brands get closer, to the creators, closer to the creative, closer to the media partners. What is the value? What, what are agencies saying in the room, if you like? What is their value add? There are lots and lots and lots of different sorts of agencies. So I, I would say there is two, there's two, uh, there's two answers to that. First of all, I think that to be a good, a good and effective and successful agency, you have to have deep expertise in whatever category you're in, whether you're a content maker, a creative agency, a media agency, a PR agency. You have to have deep expertise, and it is reasonable for you to aspire and if you and claim to be able to be able to do that better than your competitors and better than the client can themselves. That's because essentially we are a cons all agencies are we we call ourselves agencies, but we're consultancies. We're consultants. We're, we're the clients outsource parts of their business to us, whether that be in the form of a problem or a task, and we do it better than they could themselves. Um, and I think there's no, I think sometimes agencies are a bit bashful about that, but the best agencies in whatever sphere have do that brilliantly um, and add massive value to their client's business. Um, I think that of course, we can all think of instances where agencies perhaps don't, and in which case you do get asked the question, what value are you adding? But um, 
great agencies add add real value. And by the way, I think we'll continue to do so. I'm just going to ask one more question in this um, in this part of the interview, in this part of the chat, and it's this, Chris. It's how important is it for people to have side hustles? In many ways, and we're coming to talk about the book, this is kind of your side hustle. Mm-hmm. Did it improve you as a person? And also just on side hustles, have I planned to start a campaign to bring back hobbies? Because I'm sure in the olden days, side hustles were called hobbies and all it meant was you didn't <laughs> have to monetize them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the pressure was off, you know? Um, but, but do you see good examples? And did you find this particular side hustle helping? Did you see it as a, yeah, bring that to life? Yeah, I think I think a hobby is an English side hustle, isn't it? It's a sort of a kind of a, you know, side hustle is the American version of a hobby. I would never say to somebody that it's in, that it's important that they do something. I think the people, if they want to just like sit, you know, if they don't want to, don't. I mean, I think what and I, I think that's actually quite an important point, because I sometimes think that we all beat ourselves up about all the stuff that we're not doing. And yet, you know what, going to work, doing a good job, adding value is pretty mm. is exhausting. It's hard work. Um, so I certainly wouldn't say it's you have to do it in, in order to be successful or to feel fulfilled. What I would say though is, is I do think it is important to find your own way to, to switch off, to disconnect, to recharge. And we all have our own ways of doing that, whether that be, you know, you like going horse riding or you play tennis or you write a book and and certainly I'm the sort so if I can answer for myself and I'm the sort of person where I do I do need other projects and they don't have to necessarily be as be as kind of earnest as writing a book uh, you know whether that be you know I, I play sport I, I I have to have other things and I have to try and because of the sort of person I am I want to improve at those things I don't just want them to be ways of filling my time you know I want them to be something that I can throw myself into and get a sense of reward from it I think writing a book was a sort of an accidental process the way it started and writing a book is hard work um, but what was interesting was I actually found it's hard work in terms of time and commitment but I actually found it very refreshing you know I, I could sit on a, on a Saturday morning and write for four hours and even though at the end of four hours you think, oh, you know, I, I'm done, you definitely, it's a different part of your brain. I feel like I see, I see, and in fact, I talk about this because you've only read three chapters, you might not have got to this chapter. Don't shame me on the actual <laughs> podcast, Chris. You, <laughs> you missed I, the best chapter. Um, but but, I, but I, I, I kind of see us as, um, as you know, those like those things you play Trivial Pursuit with, you know, those counters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pursuit. Nice analogy. And I think, I think to be a, to be a, to be a uh, successful leader, I mean, that's what the book's about. I make the point that, you know, being all of us are lots of different people at the same time. So even if you're the most, you know, got the biggest job title, at different points, you are a boss, you're an employee, you nearly certainly have a boss yourself, you're a father or a mother, you're a parent, you're a son, you're a sibling, you're, you're losing to some 17-year-old at tennis who's thrashing you and doesn't give a shit that you're an agency CEO. And all of us are these different people at the same time. And I think what's really important is that we 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 are aware of that and we nurture all those different us's, if that makes sense. Um, and, and for each of us, those different things will be different. But I think you kind of need to consciously do that to an extent. Um, because I think otherwise you you do burn out, you know, and I, and I don't think to go back to one of your earlier questions, I don't think I did do that enough, uh, you know, for large parts of my career. So I'm with Chris, Chris Hurst, global CEO of Havas, but he's also written a book 
and the book is called No Bullshit Leadership. And what I'm keen to get to the bottom of, Chris, for the very few that aren't aware of how marketing people speaking gobbledygook and buzzwords and things like that, mm. was how did how did the idea first develop in your head? Was it because was it from a negative place where you saw people doing it badly? Was it from a positive place where you saw people doing it well? Where where, where did the germ of an idea come well, from? Well, I, I actually can give you quite a precise answer to that question, which is I was asked probably I think now about four years ago I was asked to do a presentation um, to some uh, some uh, r- recent graduates um, um, on leadership and. If we're honest, like most of us, uh, when we're asked to do presentations, I didn't think about it for three months. And then two days beforehand, I thought, oh, I've got to do a presentation. I need to think about it. And at the same time, I discovered that I was I was one of three people who'd been asked to do a presentation on leadership to these to this group. And I was the one in the middle. And the other two were very kind of luminaries of the of industry, not just our industry, but sort of industry luminaries. And I thought, oh, my God, suddenly it becomes competitive. Suddenly I think, well, how am I going to say something about leadership that isn't just the same old bullshit, frankly? Mm. Um, and so I did a presentation to them um, and, and actually sat and thought, how do I say something different? And the presentation went quite well. Um, but 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 really, when I came back, I thought to myself, well, I I think there's something in that. Is there a is there a book in that 20 minute presentation? And so I sat down basically and thought, is there is there a long essay? Is there a paper or is there a book? You know, so I sat down and thought, well, let me try and write 10,000 words. And once I've written 10,000, do I still think there's another 40 to go? <laughs> uh, and there was. So it, it, that's how it began. But but. So it sort of became, it began kind of accidental, but, but as I was writing it, I became and am now very passionate about the subject because I right. do think there's a lot of bullshit, frankly, around leadership. And I do think there's um, a, what I call the leadership industrial complex who make a large amount, billions, it's a, it's mm. a huge multi-billion industry, the leadership industry, you know, mm. that'd be training books, management consultants, business schools. And by the way, I've been to a business school and I've written a book, so I'm sort of talking to myself a bit here as well. But but they, you know, I think that they kind of have a vested interest in making the subject seem quite elitist um, and complicated. And I think this causes two really important problems. Problem one is my argument is that anybody that has people they're responsible for is a leader. Right. Uh, and if you make the subject really this, this complex complexification, if you like, of the subject inhibits those people from fulfilling their potential. And worse than that, it excludes whole swathes of society from thinking leadership's ever something they could aspire to. So these people should be a leader or are a leader or do you automatically fall into one or two um, categories, good leadership and bad leadership? Or are there some that don't showcase any forms of leadership at all? <laughs> well, I, th- I think that I think that, like I say, my, my de- so I started by thinking, what are my definitions? And my definition of, of a leader is anybody that has people they're responsible for. So that means that's people that run Sunday league football teams. That means most people in their careers have been leaders for most of their ca- careers. I mean, as soon as you have somebody that you're responsible for, you have a leadership role. Which means in the UK, let's say there's millions of people in leadership positions. The problem is we're told that leaders are the people right at the top. We're told that really the only the people called a CEO, called a general, called a prime minister, called a whatever are leaders. And I'm saying that isn't the case. And and the the problem is most of those people in leadership positions don't see themselves as leaders. And yet, I mean, I wrote these words 
three years ago and it's so mm. true now you know we need more better leaders everywhere i need better leaders in our hospitals better leaders in our schools better leaders in our in our industry and that won't happen unless people in those positions start to actively see themselves as leaders and understand that leadership is difficult but not complicated how much is your background more recent background in terms of advertising and marketing do you think we are worse than other industries do you think there's any way to splice it and dice it by industry or you or you you suspect it's across the board i suppose i think it's across the board um that, that's that's what i think i have no evidence to suggest that it isn't w what i see though is my job now advertising agency agency networks are essentially federations of lots of businesses so there's there's more than 100 businesses more than 100 people with the ceo title somewhere in the world that report to me so over the past two years let's say four years i've been and met hundreds of businesses ones that report to me my clients etc and what i see no matter where i go in the world in, in any organization not just a business if you pick at it for long enough the problem that exists in that business at the end, that problem resolves back to leadership in some shape or form. You can apply that to a team. You can apply that to an organization. You could arguably apply that to a country. Um, and what? It, and the only solution to that ultimately is better leadership. Yeah, that's the only solution. Um, and I do argue that I think that anybody can be a better leader. I'm not arguing that everybody can be. Uh, you know, not I mean, everybody has the same natural ability in the same way that if you take up a sport, some people would be better than others. But with the right practice and the right direction and the wiping away the bullshit, everybody can be better. You mention in the book, this is one of the three chapters I have read. <laughs> Thanks again for showing me. I read the piece on culture and the piece on workplace culture. Mm. And that really struck a chord with me because effectively, how impressive it was when you wrote the book three years ago to see where the value of workplace culture now i often think gets confused with corporate and social responsibility and with brand purpose the three are very very different things but somehow everybody muddles them up <laughs> have you got thoughts on workplace culture and why it's so important and why how it needs to be a focus as much as anything else so I think I think the workplace culture for me is this, is 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 the one part of an is the defining experience that anybody has in any organization. Okay, all but it doesn't just have to be business. You could apply it to any sort of organization. Organization. The defining experience within is the culture. There's two initial questions. Sometimes is that is that organization self-aware about what its culture is? Often not, but that culture does exist. And so the first and the first thing that I thought about was how do I try and define culture? I talked about defining a leader. For me, an organizational culture is the environment the leader creates in order for their teams to outperform. That's the purpose of an organization's culture. Um, and uh, and if you get it right, I mean, for a leader, it's a superpower. It's a superpower. Yeah. I mean, if you get it right, it's uncopyable. You can copy almost any other aspect of business. You can copy pricing strategies, marketing strategies, production lines, but culture is almost uncopyable. Uh, and if you get it right, uh, you know, I mean, for, for most organizations, um, most businesses, what they're actually trying to do in real terms is they're trying to do a common thing better than the competition. Sure. Very few businesses have a unique thing about them, even though they convince themselves they do. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and one of the most powerful ways of doing that is through getting an effective organizational culture. Um, 
Yeah, that, that, yeah, I was just, have you seen examples of where a company's culture has changed and as a result, its output has changed? Do you think, is it a definable quantity, I suppose? is It's tough, isn't it? Oh, it's without question a definable quantity. Um, I, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example, but I think anybody listening to this w- will be able to think of examples of their own. I, I'll give you, I'll give you um, an example anybody could think of for themselves. Um, in any organization of any size, organizations are built up of teams you know so you have multiple teams within those organizations and you look at those and you'll see different teams will perform at different um levels you can take you can take an individual from one team and put them into a different team and that person's performance will alter dramatically that person's happiness their level of achievement might go up or down and it's the team culture that's changed not them uh, and so I think, you know, a really great rule of thumb, if you want to understand what an organization's culture is, uh, again, we, we can all try this, is if you walk in on your first day or something like that, and the person you sat next to, when we used to sit next to people at work, uh, you, you <laughs> say to the person next to you, what do you have to do to get on around here? And, and, and the answer to that is a true measure of what that culture really cares about, not what's necessarily carved on reception. I think, I think that, I mean, the, the best example I can give you from personal experience is that when I, um, and it wasn't just me, when I and a team of, uh, a small team of others took over in charge at Gray um, in about 2010. And, and that for me had followed a period of, of real personal failure. So, I mean, we can talk about that if you like, but, but there was a period of real kind of dark period of personal failure. But in about 2010, I became CEO and there was a group of us, a new CCO, CSO, et cetera. And we very consciously and deliberately set about trying to create a culture um, that would allow us to outperform. And and we we did that in a very iconoclastic way. Um, We set about essentially smashing everything that we thought represented the old culture. Um, and that in itself was a was a was an act of creative destruction, if you see what I mean. Oh, but yeah. no question. Uh, there's no question that that that, that the culture um, was the was the single most important change that we made at Gray between 2010, 2014, 15. Nice, really good example. I love that um, creative destruction. It's something I'm going to take away and use in my life. Actually, it's a really good point. Well, do you know? Let, let me just, I'll expand on it because I think people mm. say, "Well, culture is really hard to change. You can't change culture, can you?" And, and you definitely can. But the reason the reason people say that is because they think of it as this soft, squishy um, kind of intangible thing. And I think you need to think about organizational culture like concrete. And you know, when you when you when you pour concrete, it's wet. So if you're laying a path, you pour it, and that you cat footprints across it and you can sign your name in it but over time it sets and that's what happens with 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 organizational culture and you can change that path but to change it you have to smash it you have to take hard physical actions you can't change an organization's culture with words you have to ultimately organizational culture is the behavior of the leader the leader um and and hard physical actions can change culture very fast if you get it right people have people come up to you at events and said i've read your book this is what i got from it have you seen have you seen real people take on board certain specifics of that and then i suppose the other thing in in this question is around a personal brand um you have a chapter which is around leading yourself i'd love you to bring that to life for our listeners as well 
Well, for, I mean, I mean, for anybody that hasn't bought the book, everybody that's everybody that's read it, it's changed their lives. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely done. I mean, without, I mean, that is the universal experience, as far as I can see. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I, I think people have people have given me lots of very positive feedback, which is very gratifying. I, I think, like any book like that, different people have, take different things from it. I mean, I can't, I couldn't say to you, there's a single piece that people keep coming back to. Everybody takes different aspects. In actual fact, I do cover quite a lot in it, even though it's quite a short book. Um, I've already forgotten your next, your your follow up question. What was it? Well, it was around the personal brand and how should people in leave themselves you describe this as and some of that comes into the positioning some of that comes yeah. into yeah mm. i i've never really liked the expression personal brand i remember when i first heard it and i remember thinking being a little bit sick in my mouth um yeah and i've and, got that now too <laughs> yeah yeah i was with a bit and uh and i suspect to be honest with you, with social media and stuff, I, I feel like maybe it's even more of a thing than it was then. But but mm. I don't really like the idea of personal brand. And I'm certainly not in the book advocating that you do you you build a if you want to and you like that kind of thing, go do whatever. It's not a book about that. Mm. Um, I, by leading yourself, what I mean is it's about how it's it's essentially about the fact that I argue leadership is is difficult but not complicated. It's leading lead, being a leader whether you're in charge of four people or 400 people is is tough it's difficult it's it can often be you know i mean i i think leadership is about achieving effective results i mean leadership is about achieving things it's about achieving results but it's about doing that in a uncertain changing movable difficult competitive often environment uh, where you are nearly always if where well, you are always categorically always making decisions with imperfect information and always some of those decisions will not work out the way you want them to work out and I think it's very easy and we hear it a lot we like hearing stories about failure you know we love oh you know failure is great failure is wonderful I only succeeded through failing and all this kind of stuff and people love hearing those stories but and 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 by the way I think that I think that that is true I mean it's difficult to achieve anything without without at some point along the way tripping up but but the but what people don't say is you hear those stories with a sort of with a with a hindsight retrospectiveness to them where everybody can laugh about it because it all worked out in the end. But when it's happening to you, it's really unpleasant. Yeah, you know, it's really tough. Uh, and I think that's why I talk about leading yourself because that's back to the sort of the uh, the piece I talked about earlier about the the, the trivial pursuit square. That, that that is really a chapter about leading yourself. It's really about looking after yourself and taking care of yourself. I mean, I think that I've made two observations about the task of a leader on top of all the things we've talked about. The first is I think you do kind of need to be the energizer bunny. You do need to to be the the energy source of last resort for your team. You you know, you can't as a leader go in and sit with your head on the desk. You just can't. Mm. Uh, certainly, you certainly can't do it very often. You can occasionally. People want you to be human. But, but you know, you have to be the energy resource for the last resort. But you are a battery. You've only got so much. If, if all you're doing is giving away energy, at some time, you have to go and recharge too. Yeah. And the second thing I, I'd say as well that leaders need to do is I, is I talk about leaders needing to be a shield. Uh, and, and a leader needs to set the objective and the tone and the culture for their team. But most leaders are leading within a bigger, wider organization. 
And the outside world, the, the rest of your organization often, will try and get in and comment and change and fiddle and meddle and go, why are you doing it like that? And I think you should do it like this. And actually what a leader needs to do is they need to, they need to absorb that on behalf of their team. They need to protect their team to as best they can from the external um, uh, you know, commentary or um, distractions. But that's tough too. You know, they've got to absorb that on behalf of their team. So, so it's really a chapter about recognizing the the the, the if you're not careful, the cost uh, of leadership and how you deal with that. I have a turn and phrase in some of the work I do, and particularly with the team that um, I, I think are great. But I always talk about upward management, and kind of what I mean around that is kind of setting expectations. So there's no way you can do the wrong work because you've said, I'm going to do this thing like this by a certain time. And I often think that leading those above you is as important as leading almost, yeah, but showing leadership of yourself, but also sometimes leading the leaders, if I've not confused the uh, analogy. Too yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And uh, one thing that a lot of people do come up to me and say about the book is that I wish my boss had read this. I, I, I get that quite a lot, actually. Um, and, um, and I think that one of the immediate follow-on questions from that is how you, people accept my argument that is anybody that has people they're responsible for as a leader, but how do you um, lead um, effectively as part of a wider organisation where you do mm a boss and often bosses, you know, how do you do that? And I think that's where, that's where managing up is so, is so important. And, and, and I, and honestly, one of the, one of the key parts of that really is, is about having the skills and the confidence um, to have the right conversations with the, the, the people above you. And I, often people are bad at that. And I think one of the reasons or bad at it, people are worried about doing it. Um, and, and I can think of instances where people, people leave organizations, people go and get another job because that's easier than having an honest conversation with the organization they're already in. And I think that's a lose-lose for everybody. Um, and so I, I think that if one of the advantages of giving people the no bullshit version of leadership is I think it gives them the skills and the confidence to be able to have more effective upward conversations as well. Um, I want to tackle two more bits during this section, Chris. First one is around actually your day job, if you like. Oh, no, actually, let me ask this question first. Are the plans to write other books, other follow-ups? Has this, has this sparked a passion to look elsewhere across the professional world and, and or maybe even not Are there any other uh, subject not at the moment um i mean about well i love writing so um i really enjoy the process of writing um you know honestly and, and bluntly i'd love to write a novel um i'm it's very it's in the works but it's a everybody's got a novel in the works it's finishing it that's the thing sure so, so I'm not making any big claims there but 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 I, I enjoy writing but at the moment in terms of the business space not yet um what I am doing at the moment though is I'm in the process of taking the the I'm working with a, with some partners some business partners to take the no book the book and turn that into a training program so i think we've had a lot of demand and a lot of requests from people around that and i think it's got a lot to offer so so as well as the book it's an actual sort of learning tools from it okay i'd love to talk a little around your day job and particularly around kind of diversity actually just in terms of 
of, of looking at that to make, I suppose, a culture and a place of work. Talk to us about the Havas Employee Inclusion Programme. Um, I'd love to learn why diversity, in your opinion, is so important and, and, and what the Havas Employee Inclusion Programme offers in your, in, in your business. I, I th- I've always thought it's it's incredibly important, and and, and when I joined uh, when I joined Havas, so that was I keep saying five years, but I think it's probably nearly six years ago now. One of the first things I did was I wrote what I called um, a, a DE and I charter. So I wrote a ten point charter about the uh, about what I wanted us to achieve in terms of the DE and I space. And and if I'm really honest with you, I think I, I pretty well made it up. I mean, you know, I I I I, I but but what I was determined to do was I was determined um, to walk the walk more than talk the talk. I, I, I get very frustrated. There's an awful lot. There's an awful lot of chat. <laughs> people mm. saying, people saying the right thing in this space, and I would be like, yeah, okay, that's all great. But what are you doing? And so I was very determined that I wanted us to do. So I set out. I set us some some clear metrics that I wanted us to achieve across uh, across fair, across uh, ethnic diversity, across female uh, leadership roles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, we then, at a, a, about two years after that, hired a head of DEI to help me understand better the challenges and yeah. also to help us implement again to make sure we were delivering. And we actually revised that. It actually was, it actually was, given I kind of pretty well made it up, it was pretty clear, you know, it, 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 it did its job to it, or at least it, it did our job. And we, re- we reviewed that and relaunched that last summer. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think, I think ultimately it's one of those topics that it's, it's, it's not something that you ever feel like, yeah, we're done. You know, uh, I mean, yeah. it's something, you know, it's, for me, it's about creating an organization where anybody, irrespective of what I think of as kind of the accidents of our birth. And by that, I yeah. mean, where, you know, um, whether that be black, white, man, woman, rich, poor, whatever your religion, sexuality, um, or, and, and frankly, any of the other challenges that we, <laughs> we face um, and, uh, as through our lives, anybody can come and not just thrive, but feel like they belong. I think that's the, that for me is the, the, key, the key measure. So people can feel like they belong irrespective of, like I said, the, the accidents of our birth and then fulfill and achieve, you know, then I think kind of then it's over to you. If we can create that environment, Everybody then has the opportunity to fulfill their own potential and and fulfill the career they want to have. I mean, these days, these days, career people want so many different things from careers compared to what they did when I joined the industry. Fascinatingly, Chris, you preempted my final question in this bit, which was about young people and leadership <laughs> and almost the qualifications. Do they do they have the tools they need to be successful in the business? workplace whatever that means that can mean a thousand different things to a thousand different people but um are 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 the young equipped well enough to to lead to follow to to deliver well it's i don't want to generalize but but Mm. but i'm gonna have to i suppose that's the question i I rather have so you (laughs) yeah to generalize gracious so i have to generalize well in general no i don't think they are and and that's that's why I, you know, I really fundamentally believe I've written what I think is quite an iconoclastic book in a way, mm. saying that, do you know what, everybody can lead and everybody can be a better leader given the right tools. But the problem is that the people that, that people 
we're, we're sort of one of the big, the greatest fallacies I think around the subject is that it's a, a it's a sort of a mysterious knowledge. Leadership is a mysterious knowledge open only to a chosen few, whether you've walked the corridors of Whitehall or gone to, you know, a fancy business school. And I'm just calling bullshit on that. And, and I, and I, and I, you know, I'm really passionate about helping um, young people believe, un, not just believe that they can be leaders. And in fact, they might already be leaders in some aspects of their lives, but help give them the tools to enable them to be more effective, which, because it's not just, that's not just good for them. That's good for all of us. We all need more better leaders everywhere. And we need better leaders from different parts of our society as well. So uh, one of the things that you asked about more books and whatever, one of the things I would like to do is find ways to um, to help more um, you kids, like kids, it's not the, right, not, not the right language, but people at sort of school leaving age and above at that sort of formative points in people's, early working and pre-working stage of their life and help them understand that, you know, that leadership is something they can be. So I'm still here with Chris Hurst and we come to the section of the interview. We come to the bit of the chat where we ask Chris for his rocket fuel, some practical insights for our audience of media, marketing, tech, youth culture, youth marketing types that they can go away and use in their daily lives. So. First of all, let's ask a big question. Who do you think gets it right? And who do you think doesn't get it right when talking to youth audiences? A deliberately vague question <laughs> to, to prompt a response. I think people like authenticity. I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think that's just like 22 year olds. I, it might, it might be, it might mean a different thing to a 22 year old to a, to a 42 year old. But I think people want organizations and they want brands that, that are authentic. I don't think, I don't think that's new. I think what we, what we, what we take as to be, to be authentic, uh, I think changes with society, but I don't think that that's new. I think some brands, I think some, I think some brands and organizations do a, do a great job of talking to, to, uh, uh, to young people, whether that be, um, as you say, whether that be universities, whether that be brands like, in my opinion, brands like Nike. I mean, I think a brand like uh, Spotify is, you know, and TikTok. I mean, you know, the Snapchat. I mean, I know these are kind of pretty obvious answers, but they have massive engagement with, mm. with young audiences. And in fact, Often, less so with Spotify, which I think is a more universal brand, but but often that they're engaging in in almost worlds that that anybody over the age of twenty five doesn't even knows doesn't even knows happening. I think a lot of gaming brands. I mean, there's a whole you know this whole ecosystem around gaming brands. Of course, there's a lot of a lot of influencers um, who are you know who are doing a great job of talking to. To, to younger people, often because that, to come back to the authenticity point, because you've got almost people they consider to be their peers. I mean, a lot of brands, organizations, a lot of typical authority figures, however good they are at it, they sort of feel like they're talking down. You know, you know Nike's run by a really rich 50 year old. Mm. Whereas when you're talking to a gamer, interacting with a gamer on Twitch, you know, that person could be the same age as you. They could look like you, their bedroom could look like you. And I think, I, I think that there's a there's a whole world now that that has that has developed. And I think one of the 
I think there's, look, I, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm pretty negative about social media. I'm not a fan of social media, um, but I'm not going to pretend that there's no positives about it. And, but, but that said, I think there are a lot of negatives about the fact that these worlds exist, um, almost in exclu exclusive worlds exist. Draw this to a close, Chris. I'd love your thoughts on how things are going to change. And I'll keep that really open. I'd love to know whether that is looking at how leadership will have to change, whether you're looking at the advertising and marketing world to change, or simply what will change in society and brands need to react to. Well, I, 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 I've got quite a big answer for that. Um, I, I think that over the past three years, there's been three, four um, massive global events. Uh, um, and those four massive global events are uh, the Me Too movement, um, the uh, climate uh, extinction rebellion or the climate emergency, whatever language you want to use, Black Lives Matter, and of course, COVID. And I think any one of these, th these are huge global, simultaneous global events. Mm. And any one of those um, represents a huge period of discontinuous change for global societies, global businesses, global organizations taken together. I think it really, you know, we really find ourselves in a period of almost unprecedented, I think, social change. And I, and I summarize, you know, and if I look as a, as a business leader, and frankly, I don't think it's just applicable to businesses, you could apply the learnings to whole societies. Mm. I talk about it as heat, I, I, and that is humanity, ecology, and technology. Nice. And I think, I think the implications are that all, let's keep it to businesses for now, all businesses, um, have to now, now have heat, humanity, ecology, and technology sitting right in the middle of the boardroom table. It's not that nobody was talking about those things at all. They're all around. But now they have to sit right at the top table and they have to be part of your business strategy. And I think, it, you know, in purpose is a kind of a sort of a used and abused word. I think the businesses of the future will embrace the implications of heat. And in actual fact, those that do, uh, will be the businesses that not only we want to buy from, they're the businesses that we want to invest in, and they're the businesses that we want to work at. Um, and I think that's, a, you know, a, a, I think it's really interesting to look at those four things as a as a kind of a combined... What a, what a great... Well, is that yours, Chris, or have you read... That is mine. It, that you, is really positive. Thank you for putting the heat article, under this project. <laughs> well, for those for those interested, I've written an article recently at Forbes, which expands... Which ex bands on the argument um, a little um, but yeah Chris a really really great way to um, yeah end with uh, putting some heat under this particular chat it's been awesome and I really really like that takeaway Chris where can people find out more about you your work if they want to get in touch if indeed you want them to get in I'd touch I'd love them to get in touch they can find me in having had a moan about social media they can find me <laughs> at all the usual social media places whether that be LinkedIn whether that be Chris Hurst underscore leadership uh, at Instagram and of course noble that noble leadership.com and of course the book is available on uh, a paperback kindle audiobook in all the usual places it's a great read i've got to read the rest of the chapters having been chastised for any reading free <laughs> and in my defense i was given limited uh, a copy not that long ago so um but it is a great read what i've read thus far chris i can't thank you enough thanks so much for being this week's guest on rocket fuel great thanks so much having me i've really enjoyed it
So that was Chris Hurst. He's written the book, No BS Leadership. Fascinating insights into careers, into the best professional behavior. And I thought it was really good to kind of look at these business problems through the prism of something we can then apply to young people. Starting out, that piece around upward management. If you think anybody else could get anything from it, then do share it with them. Do have a look for uh, Chris's book, because it's a good read. And uh, get back to us soon for the next edition of Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.